This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. Welcome. In this week's Reflection, we take a look at a passage from the first chapter of the Gospel of St. Mark, where Jesus exercises power and authority, and we look at the kind of power and authority Jesus actually uses and how that might impact our own use of power in our lives. In this morning's reflection, I hope to try and connect two running themes that I've been presenting for the last few weeks or months and and connect them to this absolutely crazy story that Jim read to us from the Gospel of St. Mark. So, the two themes are these. First of all, I'm going to remind you, I've suggested on numerous occasions that according to my reading of the Bible, which is one person's opinion, there seems to be nothing more important to the God represented in the Bible, the God formerly known as Yahweh, as I jokingly like to say, the God of the Bible, that there seems to be nothing more important to this God than relationships, our relationships with the God of the Bible, our relationships with each other, and I would express also our relationship to, this, to all of creation. That as I read the text, and I've studied it for more than 50 years, there's nothing more important to this God than these relationships. The other theme that I've been uh, sort of referencing since Christmas Eve is that we find ourselves in the midst of chaos and in dealing with the chaos in our lives as individuals and societally, or however you say that, that instead of trying to destroy or vanquish or conquer the chaos in our lives, a better outcome might be achieved by embracing the chaos and looking at what it might have to teach us and open new avenues of us to grow in compassion and wisdom. So these are the two themes that I'm going to try and pull together out of this wild text from the Gospel of Mark this morning. So Jesus is back in his hometown of Capernaum. He's at his hometown synagogue, and he's standing up and teaching one day, and the text tells us that Jesus taught with authority. Now, what I have come to understand that to mean in my own studies and exploration of this text is Jesus was self-referential. Like, uh, posers like me will stand up here and I will regale you here in the next 10 minutes with all these wonderful quotes from other wise people to sort of demonstrate to you how well-read I am and how educated I am to give you the illusion that I know what I'm talking about. Well, Jesus didn't seem to quote anybody. He just said, I say to you, he was self-referential in his wisdom, which was totally unheard of in that day or this day. And so that was a sign of his great authority. And so while he is speaking, someone in the crowd starts to scream out. And the text tells us 
that it was an evil spirit or a demonic spirit. Now, <clears throat> I have no clue what that's about. I'll be very honest with you. Look, there's a lot of people that believe there are things called demons that are fallen angels and are running around trying to cause as much pain and suffering as they can, and they torment people. There's a lot of people that believe that. Others would look at this text and say, oh, no, 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 that's in a pre-scientific age, that's what epilepsy would have, might have looked like. Or pre-Carl Jung, people might say, or, you know, now that we have post-Carl Jung, we would look at this text and say, oh, that was the shadow side of this man disrupting the meeting at that time. I don't know what it was. I wasn't there. I, I don't know how you determine what was going Obviously, the man was uh, uncomfortable, disquieted, and Jesus took care of it. But I want to say, and Jesus took care of it with power. And the gospel texts have numerous references to the power that Jesus seemed to possess and be able to administer. My suggestion is the type of power that Jesus had and how he used it is very different than what we may normally think of as power. For example, Jesus did not destroy this evil spirit in this man. He just made it be quiet and go away. He didn't kill it. He didn't conquer it. He didn't uh, destroy it. He just made it be quiet and go away. And, and the interesting thing, I love this, that often the demons represented in the gospel texts are always speaking truth. Uh, the demon in this text was, was very accurate. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, that, we all believe that. Now, some of us may think others in here are demons, but I'm not going to go there for this morning. But... The demon, everything the demon said, we would by and large think is truth. It just seemed to be truth uh, expressed in an inappropriate way, at an inappropriate time, in an inappropriate manner. And so Jesus made it be quiet. But again, Jesus did not destroy it. And, and this leads to the whole question of God's power. We say God is um omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful, and yet the, the question begs to be asked, if that's the case, why doesn't God destroy the devil? Or why doesn't God eradicate all evil? Why doesn't God make wars to cease? Why doesn't God wipe out disease and poverty? If God's all-powerful, why didn't God do that stuff? Use the power for crying out loud. And it seems that the Bible is ambiguous about the use of power and God's use of power. And so here's my suggestion for us this morning. The, the wonderful theologian I rely on a lot for my parable, parable study, Robert Farrar Capon, the Episcopalian theologian, talks about the difference between right-handed and left-handed power. Right-handed power is direct power. It is strength. It is, I'm going to conquer you. I'm going to make you submit. I'm going to force you to do what I want done. Now, the difficulty is that kind of power gets good results, at least in the short term. The problem with that kind of power 
is it destroys relationships. And Capon goes on to talk about left-handed power, which is a, a, a line he stole from Martin Luther. But left-handed power relinquishes its ability to dominate and control and force. And the problem is left-handed power often looks like weakness. But as Capon says, when you come to think of it, left-handed power is real power, so much power, in fact, that the only thing, it's the only thing that evil can't touch. So, all right, for, I know this all sounds theoretical. Here's, here's where I'm going with this. So in our history, the Christian history, there have been periods where Christians have used right-handed power to do what they wanted. Our European ancestors came here to conquer this land and bring Christ to it and dominate the land and take the land and by force stole the land from the people that were already here. Right-handed power. We had better weaponry. We had more sophisticated ways to kill people. So we came and we conquered. The result is we did serious injury to the relationships we could have had with the indigenous peoples that were already here. In the history of Christianity, the Crusades was right-handed power. We need to go take the Holy Land from those evil people. That's right-handed power. It destroys relationships. On the other hand, left-handed power, when we abdicate our ability to coerce and to force, it looks like weakness. And how many examples do we need? I mean, look at what's going on in, in Palestine and Gaza and Israel today. Those dear folks have been trying to exert right-handed power over each other for thousands of years, and we've gotten no further along in the relationships as a result of that. And so this left-handed power that I'm referencing is really important. And so the thinking is, in dealing with the chaos that's in your life and in my life and in our world, the thinking is, why don't we stop trying to conquer it and call it evil and dominate it and eradicate it Rather, the idea might be, what is the chaos going on in my life and your life trying to teach us about another way of being human, of opening up in us new beginnings and possibilities of becoming? That's where I'm going with this. All right, so here's a, here's a concrete example I will offer for us. I was reading this week, Michael J. Fox. You know who Michael J. Fox was, all right? He was in the TV show Family Ties and then did the movies Back to the Future and Into the Future and all that. Well, at 29, Michael J. Fox was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and it aborted his whole acting career, his, his trajectory of being a rich and famous star. Parkinson's came in. And on January 11th of this year, Michael J. Fox was awarded... Uh, at the National Board of Review, they did a documentary on his life called Still, 
a Michael J. Fox movie, and it won the best movie. So he got this award. So at this gala in New York, Michael J. Fox is quoted as saying this. The Parkinson's he's referring to. It's been a gift. The Parkinson's has been a gift that keeps on taking. <laughs> it's been a gift because it has given me an audience to talk about what's possible. A new way of being, of what's possible. And he goes on to talk about how his lovely wife has journeyed with him in these over 30 years of his decline due to the Parkinson's disease. And she's not deserted him. She's not left him. She stayed with him. And he's asked her, why are you doing this? Why are you putting up with this? You didn't sign up for this. And she said, because I promised to love you in sickness and in health until death do us part. And he said, nobody would blame her if she just went on and got on with her life. But she hasn't. And the depth of their relationship, he's discovered a depth of love and acceptance that he might not have had he been continuing on that trajectory of being a rich and famous star, wondering, does this person love me because I make this money because I'm famous? He's learned new things due to the chaos of the Parkinson's in his life. It's opened up new possibilities of being. That's what I'm talking about. So the, I'm, I want to reference just briefly before we conclude and get on to the other things we need to do. That on a personal level, exploring the chaos in my life can open up my soul to a more passionate and robust way of living. The uh, Jungian psychologist Thomas More, who wrote The Care of the Soul, puts it this way. He says, a soulful life is never without shadow, and I would say shadow could be referenced as the chaos that's inside of us. And some of the soul's power comes from the shadow's qualities. If we want to live from our depths soulfully, then we have to give up all pretenses of innocence as the shadow grows darker. The chief reward of surrendering our innocence so that the soul may be fully expressed is an increase in power. In the presence of deep power, life becomes robust and passionate, signs that the soul is engaged and given, being given expression. So here's what I'm saying. If we quit trying to conquer the craziness that's in us and around us and seeing it as evil and I've got to repress it and I've got to push it down and oh no, no, I don't want those feelings and, I, and, we, and we stuff it. What, what all the Jungian psychotherapists will tell us is we're just making that thing stronger and it's going to erupt in an even bigger problem later down the road. So instead of doing that, all right, what's it trying to teach me? What's it trying to show me? And allow it to open me up to accept myself in new ways and accept you in new ways. That, that's the possibility here. So that's on the personal level. On the societal level, I would say that our efforts to dominate and conquer other nations has been less than profitable, as well as trying to conquer and dominate the resources of this planet. Now, there are some people that take the 
uh, text out of the book of Genesis that we are human beings and that all the earth is under our dominion. And so they take that uh, idea and they say, okay, we can exploit the planet's resources for our own enjoyment and benefit because we're humans, we're the top of the food chain, we're in charge, we have dominion over it all. And so we've made a big mess out of this garden you and I have been planted in. And so there's an ecological viewpoint to this. If we would stop trying to dominate and conquer, but look at how might we live in the midst of this. It's important. I've been reading, I've told you, I'm reading this wonderful feminist progressive theologian, Catherine Keller, who's blowing my mind. And as I've told you before, my wife says, not a big blow. <laughs> but she writes this. We lose our special human status when we abuse power, when we mistake dominion for dominance. We fail in our responsibility as caretakers of the earth. Ipso facto, we abdicate dominion. So if we try to dominate, conquer, take advantage of, exploit, that is the opposite of what we should be doing. How do we work in concert with this being we call God, this creation we're a part of, and each other to create a more equitable and just society for all and a more habitable planet for all beings? How do we do that? I'm suggesting it's by allowing the chaos in our lives to teach us something and to stop trying to make it evil and conquer it. And by trusting that it's in the relationships that we have with this being we call God with each other and with the creation we are a part of, that is the way to live more humanely, with, uh, more robustly and with passion.